0: You know, as you look out over the sea of humanity, it's easy to see that God has made his people with great diversity, right? There's a, there's a great diversity of preferences, of likes and dislikes, of personalities, of strengths, and of weaknesses, of skin tones and heights, and body shapes and sizes, of all different types of things. There's great diversity. But there's one thing that really unites the human experience, and it's pain, Right? No one, uh, no human is, uh, absent from suffering. We all know what it's like, what it's like to hurt, what, what it's like to, to feel pain. Suffering seems to be the universal language. Tears flow down our cheeks all the same. And in, in a world where there's pain and there's hurt and there's also diversity, one of the things the world really likes to do is to try to point around and, and highlight our differences. So okay, here you know, and and kind of pit people against each other. And as Peter's writing to a church that knew pain quite well, uh, because of the Roman persecution and everything that was going on, a church that was very much divided, uh, or, or a culture that was very much dis- divided, I should say, and and seeking that division in the church, uh, Paul or Peter's writing, and he said, hey, what the world's talking about out there is not what we're focusing on in here. Right, They're focused on everything that divides. We focus on what unites. And so as Peter writes this letter to a church that's experiencing pain, in his genius, he doesn't focus on the source of the pain. Right, He's not focusing on the problem. His primary motivation in writing is so that they would focus their hearts and their minds on the solution. And in so doing, the letter became extremely important, not just for the church of Peter's generation, but the church of all generations, we continue to to go to it for hope, for encouragement, for confidence, and we'll continue that this morning as we're in First Peter chapter one, verses seventeen through twenty-five. 1 Peter one seventeen through twenty-five. Peter writes, "And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways." "...inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, So just to get you back up to speed and where we are, just kind of r- refresh our minds where we are now in 1 Peter. Peter begins this letter in a standard, standard customary letter writing of the day, uh, of in the, in the Greek letter writing of the day. And he begins by telling them, okay, here's who God is. And here's what God has done. And now here's who you are, your elect exiles, chosen by God, rejected by the world. Now here's how you should think as he moves into the body of his letter. You should think that, hey, you should focus on your living hope. You serve a living Lord, you have a living hope. And he, this living Lord, he has secured for you an eternal inheritance that is never fading, never dimming. The thrill of it will never go old. It'll always be just as fresh a thousand years from uh, the time you inherit it than from the moment you first inherit it. This is the content of your inheritance. But right now, as you are exiles, yeah, there's various trials that you're going through, but these trials are temporary. Your inheritance is eternal, but the trials are temporary. So you're a blessed people. You're a blessed people. You're the type of people that the prophets wrote to and about long ago. And you're the type of people that the angels look at with wonder and awe as God's grace is, is given to you. And then he moves, okay, so here's how you think. Here's what you focus your mind on. And then he moves into action, okay? He says, okay, now prepare your mind for action." I want you to be a mindful people, right? That we worship God, not just with our spirit and our emotion, but but it's that, yes, but it's also with our minds, mental and physical, with our bodies. It's all of life, okay? So you don't just follow the mob and, hey, whatever they're doing, that's just what we're going to march that drumbeat as well. No, no, no. We're a mindful people. And then he goes on from there, so be holy as I am holy. Peter's quoting this great Old Testament command. It's the same thing. Hey, you're not just doing things selfishly. You're not following the mob, and you're also just not following self. We're following Jesus. And so now, this morning, Peter's really building off of that. And, he's, and his next point, hey, if you call Father judge, then conduct, conduct yourself with fear. If God is your father and he is judge, then live life with fear. You say, well, that's kind of a worrying motto for life, you know, be afraid, be very afraid. I don't know if that's that comforting, but it seems to be what Peter is saying here. And part of the reason is, you know, when we think of judgment, one of the natural things that we kind of associate with judgment is fear, right? I mean, judgment and fear, those two things seem to go together. And Peter's putting them together here, except the way we conceive of fear and the way we conceive of judgment is not necessarily what Peter's writing here. See, right off the bat, you need to keep in mind that Peter is writing about this concept of holy fear, not to unbelievers who have plenty of reason to fear God, but he's writing to Christians to believers who call God their father. So he's highlighting this intimate family relationship that the believer has with God, that the God who is awesome and over all of the universe and all of eternity, he's your father because of faith in Jesus Christ, his son. But still the question remains, but we're supposed to fear God? We're supposed to fear him as, as father? Well, I think... The best way to kind of understand this fear, I want to give you an analogy for how we can understand this fear and then walk you through the judgment a little bit because, you know, judgment in scripture and when we think about it and like the judgment to come, I think it's one of the areas that the church, we've almost kind of given way into like folksy fairy tale traditionalism when it comes to judgment, right? We think, okay, we're going to walk up before the pearly gates and St. Peter's going to be there and he's going to have this thing, a list or something and ask us some questions. Sometimes that's the way we conceive of judgment and what that day is going to look like. There's nothing like that in the scripture, okay? It's just kind of fairy tale stuff. So what kind of fear is this? Let's start with that. I think the best analogy for this would be like if if you played sports or something growing up and you're part of a baseball team, softball team, football, basketball, something like this, track, and you know you went all the time and obviously you always want to do well, right? I mean you're competing, you want to win, you want to do a good job, but let's just say like your dad he's not always there but then he shows up for one of the events. And now you're really motivated, right? It's almost like there's this extra level of pressure because I know my dad's here, right? It's not that I'm worried that, you know, if if I fail, that he's just going to, like, beat me over the head and tell me, like, what a lousy athlete I am. It's not that. I just want him to be proud of me, right? I I want him to see me do a good job. So, man, this this day, especially, I want him to look and say, wow, I'm really proud of you and how you competed and what you did. That's the type of fear that Peter's writing about here. How do we know that that's the type of fear? Well, Peter, he's talking about a bema seat judgment. There's there's two judgments in the scripture, okay? Bema seat judgment. Bema means stair step. Uh, when I think of this, I can't help but not imagine because it's like an open air porch where you step up onto this open air porch, this bema seat. Okay, that's the, that's the that's the picture, and I can't help but think of when I was over in Sierra Leone, Africa, and um, there's two of us, American guys. And we hop in the van, and it was, it was it was it was crazy hot. And we're driving, and they tell us, "Hey, let's go see a waterfall." You know, we want to do something fun. So, hey, let's go check out this waterfall. All right, yeah, that sounds great. We can't wait to see it. How how long is the drive going to be? Oh, about half an hour. Uh, about two, three hours later, we're finally at this place. We've driven all over African countryside, through like subsistence farming communities and everything. And um, we finally arrive in this village. And by the way, there's nothing really nice in Sierra Leone. Like I've, I've never like seen anything over there. Like, wow, that's really, n-. no, no, no. There's, there's nothing like that. But this was about the nicest thing that I had seen. It was, uh, it was an open air porch and it was kind of made of um, tile and stuff. And so we walk up onto and there's just a, a step that you take to get up there. And then when we're there, there's uh, the tribal chief. And he's sitting on a chair, a step above the rest of us. And so there's, all, all of our African friends than me and one other American guy. And he's talking, he's speaking a tribal language that these guys can understand. We're just sitting there, and we're, we're like fearful, okay? Me and the other American guy, okay? Because we're in the middle of nowhere. And basically, the whole thing is, is he going to give us access to see the waterfall or not, right? Is he going to allow us to see it or not? And we're sitting there, and it's, it's kind of a scary thing because you're out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, literally nowhere in the world. And uh, then all of a sudden, uh, one of my African buddies, he's nudging me and he's saying, Steve, smile, smile. So I'm pasting on like this fake smile, right? I'm just, you know, just so fake, but you know, I'm just trying uh, and eventually we paid a bribe and we were able to see the waterfall. And you know, that's kind of how it worked. Um, we think sometimes of the judgment as, okay, we stand there and it's this intersection. Where God's going to decide, okay, do you get to go to heaven or do you get to go to hell? Like that's somehow, sometimes how we conceive the judgment. Listen, there's two judgments in scripture. One is the great white throne judgment. You read about that in Revelation 20. That's for unbelievers, okay? And it's already been decided. and And it should be a time of great fear because it's a terrible judgment. It's an awful thing. Because then their guilt is shown to them and they, they experience the consequences of their guilt. They're ushered into eternal lake of fire. It's a terrible thing. And that's the great white throne judgment. This is not that. This is the beam of seat judgment. When you, when you stand before God in an open air and be, just the fact that you're standing before him demonstrates that you are safe, that you are secure. It's not God deciding, are you gonna go to heaven or hell? no no heaven is already secure for you so it's not that and on the other hand it's not simply not that it's also not God saying okay let's let's just run a dvd of your life okay let's just let everybody see and here's all the all the really bad things that you did and thought and all this kind of stuff is really awful and here's all the good stuff that you did and you know we'll reward you for that you know, sometimes we we conceive of the judgment like that the bmc judgment's not that It's not God showing a DVD of our life and saying, oh, here's the good stuff and here's the bad stuff. and Let's reward you for the good stuff. No, 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 it's not that. How do we know it's not that? Because we have a a biblical uh, understanding of atonement, a biblical understanding of the work of Christ on the cross and what that accomplished. And Peter, he would go on to say in in 1 Peter 2 that um, we will never be judged for our sins. Isaiah said this, that the coming Messiah would bear the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6. And Paul wrote, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Okay, it's, it's not this, okay, let's, let's condemn you for all the bad stuff, reward you for all the good stuff. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews said this, God chooses to remember our transgressions no more. Micah, the prophet Micah said that God will cast their sins into the depths of the sea. Understand the record of your sin, it has been judged in Christ if He is Lord. And God says He's thrown that into the depths of the big blue sea and He's never going to dredge it up again. He's he's choosing not to remember it. He's not going to show you this video oh man, you really blew it there. You're so ugly there. This is so bad. Look at your thought life here. It's so ugly. No, no. It's not that. It's done. It's paid for. That's already been judged. In Jesus Christ on the cross, it's judged, it's been paid for. This is not what that judgment is. So understand, the Bema seat judgment for the believer is not God deciding, do you go to heaven or hell? And it's also not God looking and saying, okay, here's what you did that was really ugly, and here's what you did that was really good. It's not those things. So what is it? It's God judging not your position in Christ, but your priorities for Christ. How Did you prioritize your life? And I want to reward you for all those good things that you did for when, when I was Lord and when you live life for my glory, because you're saying we're, we're the bride of Christ. So it's essentially, Hey, what kind of bride have you been? You're a child of God. What kind of child have you been? And where's all the good stuff? Where's your faithfulness? Where's your purity? Where's your truth? Where have you demonstrated and live life for his glory? That's what's being judged. And, in a sense, it's really like a rewards banquet. It's a celebration. This this judgment is not a a judgment of um, where you think, oh man, that's going to be really painful. It's going to be really embarrassing. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be ugly. no, no, no. It's not that. It's a celebration. It, this judgment is a celebration uh, because all the areas that we've lived life to the glory of God that gets rewarded. Now, typically, when we think of living life to the glory of God, what we typically think of, okay, what's God going to reward us for? Well, he'll reward us for our evangelism, you know, we go out, we're sharing the gospel, he reward us for that. We think of um, Bible study, okay, do we, do we read the Bible, do we pray? God will probably be pretty happy with that, maybe we get a reward for that one. Um, disciple making, uh, our generosity, you know, how, how much do we give? Like, those are the things, And yes, we will be judged for those things and those acts where we've done that solely for the glory of God. Yes, reward. But you understand it's not simply that. See, we often live lives where we have this spiritual category and anything that goes into the spiritual category, we think, okay, God will reward for that. But when you study the scriptures, one of the things you notice is we're to build our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And all of it gets judged And so, and and when you read that, um, what he's referring to there is every detail, every aspect of your life. It's all built on Jesus. So if you take like a construction analogy, it's like every last nail that's been used, every, every like piece of electrical tape or something that's in the construction, everything that goes into it, it all matters. So that's the beautiful thing about a relationship with God, is that he doesn't look at any part of your life and say, you know what? That's trivial. That's mundane. I don't really care about that. Do whatever you want there. Who cares? No, no, no. God cares about every last detail, even the stuff that to you and me does seem a little bit trivial, does seem a little bit mundane. Now, in this judgment, you can be rewarded for that. Like, how did how did you do the dishes? How'd you brush your teeth? How'd you how you mow the lawn? All these different things. Like, no, I care about that. How did you steward your relationships with your as, as a neighbor? As a citizen, how did you steward your body? How did you, how did you steward your finances? All this I care about all of it. There's nothing that God looks like looks at and says, insignificant, doesn't matter. No, He says I want it all. I want it all, and so I will judge for all. And so everything that we do to the glory of God, that will be rewarded. Anything that we just do mindlessly, well, I just do this because I always do it. But that's nothing, right? That, that all gets burned up. And there's going to be some. The Bible tells us that, hey, they they made it into heaven. It's almost like they're still singeing, right? It's like through the flames they they make it. And essentially what happens in that judgment is it just all burns up. There's like nothing there. So, and for us, like this side of heaven, it's like, man, it's almost embarrassing, right? I mean, you get this wonderful gift of grace, and then we're going to judge and say, okay, God, well, like, how, how did you live life to God's glory? It's like, well, nothing. It all got burned up. Like, Everything you did in life was ultimately for yourself or someone else, but nothing was really for the glory of God. And on this side of eternity, we say, man, that sounds depressing. But understand this this judgment is not a depressing time. This judgment's not a time of awkwardness or uh, feeling guilty or anything like that. It's still the, we look around, and we say, you know what? And look at the grace of God. You're still in. You're in. You made it because you did have faith in Jesus. The faith didn't produce what it ought to have produced, but it's Jesus. And then for others who've been faithful, down to the details of their life, and they've lived their life to the glory of Christ, mindfully, intentionally. And they're rewarded for that. Even then we know, well, still that's Christ. Like you couldn't have done that by yourself. You would have never prioritized that way. It's all him. So all the focus, all the attention, all the honor in that moment, it all goes to God. And in some ways, it's hard for us to, to imagine that now. But that's how it will be. It'll be a good, glorious judgment. It's important to have a biblical understanding of judgment. Uh, the great white throne judgment for the unbeliever, the bema seat judgment for the believer, because there's a whole bunch of folksy tradition, fairy tale stuff out there that's just simply untrue. And so Peter's writing to encourage the church, hey, remember, your father's your judge. Your father's your judge. And this is important. Because he's a good father. He's he's a righteous father. His his courtroom is glory. His judgments are are pure and true and and righteous. And so he tells them this, that, hey, uh, he will judge impartially. That he's an impartial judge. Now, I think one of the reasons why he tells them that uh, God is an impartial judge is because... The judicial system at that time was not impartial at all. Those who were well-connected, those who had money, they were buying off judges all the time. It's just how it worked. Now, in our country, we like to think of Lady Justice as having a blindfold on and being an impartial judicial system, and that is the ideal, and that is what we strive for. But it's not always realized, right? That Judgment is not always unbiased, impartial, as much as we might like to think so, as much as we might strive to make it happen. The only true impartial judge is Jesus. The only true impartial judge is God. He's the, he's the only one who will judge impartially, purely, righteously, every single time, all the time. And we can have confidence in that. And we can also have confidence that he's going to judge his, his children um, In a way that is uh, that's a celebration. It's it's a celebratory time, and we know this because of our uh, theology of Jesus' work on the cross. Now, knowing that He's Father, Peter's kind of moving and saying, "Okay, He's Father. You've been adopted into this family. It's a it's a family that you've been adopted into, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. So you've been adopted into a forever family. And so knowing that." Hey, love one another. And so he's talking about the family of faith here, okay? The family of God. And love, love each other. And what he's saying is, you've been ransomed from the feudal ways that you inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He's a lamb without spot or blemish. He's been made manifest in these last times for your sake. The prophets looked forward to him, but now in these last times he's been made manifest. What an unbelievable privilege. Your hope, your faith are in God. Listen, if you don't know God, your hope and your faith are somewhere, right? We all put hope and faith somewhere, and we all make gods. Either either Jesus Christ is Lord in God, or someone or something else becomes Lord or God. We live life uh, for that person or those things. Right, And so some people, what's Lord and God of their life? Perhaps a job, perhaps an activity, perhaps a relationship, a spouse, a child, something like this. Maybe, maybe there's a political figure that's idolized, and you look, to look at them, or a movement, or something like this. There's, there's always other things that we can put in that place, and that becomes the anchor. We think, okay, if this is solid, if they're doing well, if this is happening, life is good. But if that tends to go sideways, not as much. Now, for the believer, our hope and our faith is in God. And one of the things that that we even sang this morning is He's the same God. See, He's an anchor because He doesn't change. The world may change, society may be spinning out of control. Whatever else happens, our family stuff happens in our family, and everything seems sideways, upside down. We're going through difficulties, pain, whatever. God doesn't change. So he studies, he's, he's an anchor for life. And, and so knowing this, hey, now I brought you into this family, love one another, love one another. Why? Because of the obedience to the truth. It's being obedient to the truth. Now, sometimes, hey, we say, hey, we'll love family because they're family. And it's allegiance to family. If you love family just because you're being allegiant to family, that's not really healthy. Okay, that's not really healthy. Family apart from Christ uh, is not is not healthy. In order to have a healthy family, Jesus has got to be center, right? Jesus, Jesus has to be Lord of the family. That that's important. And so He says, "Hey, you've been saved from the futile ways that you inherited from your family, and it's all without Christ. It's all futile. And what are, what are some ways that families motivate?" Apart from Christ. Sometimes it can be tradition, right? Like this is this is what we do. in uh, our, you know, our family's always done this for generations. We meet, we eat, whatever. And they're not bad things, right? Family traditions can be great and beautiful and wonderful. But if it's not, if Jesus is not a sinner, it's ultimately futile. Okay? Some other some other ways, well, hey, maybe it's family pride. Hey, well, this is who we are. So This is what we're about. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But if Jesus is not a sinner, it's, it's, it's ultimately futile. Sometimes it can be guilt, right? Well, you, you know, you really should come. Mom's going to be really disappointed if you're not there. I mean, you know, we've heard the guilt trips before. And sometimes, you know, family can be motivated by guilt. Listen, if it's not motivated by a conviction of who Jesus Christ is, you never end up in a healthy place. You end up with feudal ways. And this is what uh, Peter's talking about. He says you've been saved from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers. And in some ways, if you go through this section, he's saying, okay, don't don't go for the mindlessness that's out there. You need to be mindful people. So you know, don't just follow the mob and. And then, hey, you're living life for the glory of God. It's not for the glory of self. So it's not selfish ambition. It's all for his ambition. So it's not for the mob. It's not for self. And here, it's not for family. It's not the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers. No, no, you're, you've been adopted into a new family, a forever family, where God the Father is, where God is Father. And so that's who you're now living for. And so it's Jesus above all. It's Jesus above the mob. It's Jesus above self. It's Jesus above family. Jesus above everything. He's he's the one that we live life for. And as Peter's writing this section, he's actually alluding to the story of the Exodus, where God's people were in slavery. They were under an awful dictator who set up really this counterfeit kingdom of God where he was a counterfeit God. And in this, God determined to rescue and to deliver his people. And so he's, he's sending judgments against Pharaoh and the kingdom. And, and it results ultimately in the judgment of the of the death angel, where the death angel is going to come. And throughout all of Egypt, uh, the firstborn male child would die. But for the Hebrews, they were to gather together in their home. They were to confess their sin to one another. They were to take the, the blood of a pure spotless lamb, without blemish, they would take the, the blood and then put it on the doorpost. So understand, there's this internal aspect to it where the family gathers inside the home and they are, they're confessing their sin to one another, but there's also an external aspect to this faith where it's not just, okay, I've got this private faith that you know I don't really need to talk about, nobody really needs, no, no. It, it then gets transferred to the external and they take the blood and they smear it over the doorposts. And then when the angel of death comes, it's going to pass over them because they've demonstrated, okay, they have faith in God. And so this, now the ultimate lamb is Jesus Christ. And so for us today, we look at this and say, okay, our loyalty is not simply to family for family's sake. Our loyalty is to Jesus. And if I love family just for family's sake, it might seem like a very loving thing, but it's actually not loving. Because without Jesus, it doesn't lead to blessing it doesn't lead to uh, the good things of life. No, without a family without Jesus is disaster, right? The, e- the Egyptians experienced that, and people continue to experience that today. Every family needs Jesus. The hope for your family is not family. The hope for your family is Jesus. And so, so the impetus here is to share Jesus with your family. Share Jesus with your family. You know, we talk a lot about making disciples, right? Making disciples who worship Jesus daily, who are consistently being changed by Jesus and who are increasingly committed to the mission of Jesus. And we want to do that in the different spheres of our life. But in a lot of ways, it begins in the home. Begins in the home. Does your spouse worship Jesus more because of the conversations that you're having, because of the life that you live? Are you an encouragement to your spouse to want to, to love Jesus, to worship Jesus, to prioritize Jesus? And for your kids... Are you intentionally investing in them? You're not absent from them. You're not living life vicariously through them, but you're intentionally investing in them so that they would know Jesus, to love Jesus, to worship Jesus. Uh, we want to build uh, families that know Jesus and love Jesus. And the Jesus, and I must say, in today's day, the Jesus of the scriptures, right? Not the Jesus of our own invention, and but it's the Jesus of the scriptures. So we go back to the Bible. And there's this reality here that we're now adopted into a family of faith, right? And so that's kind of where Peter moves, all right? Yes, we have the, fam- the family, the, uh, the physical family, the one of perishable seed, uh, and we want to share Jesus with that family, but there's also this realization that you're now adopted into a new family of imperishable seed, a forever family, the church family, And how do you respond to the church family? How do you relate to the church family? You love one another. So that's where Peter takes us. He says, love love each other. Love one another. You're you're adopted in this family of faith. God is Father. And so how do we respond to our adopted brothers and sisters? Love. Love. Now why? Why does he say that? Because of obedience to the truth. Now that's really important. Why is that so important? Because the gospel does not change. The truth doesn't change. My emotions change, right? Sometimes I feel like loving, but sometimes I don't. Uh, The other person's actions change, like sometimes their action merits love, and sometimes their action doesn't. But we love not based on our emotions and how we're feeling. Do I feel like loving or not? Not based on their merit. Are they worthy of love or not? But we love based on obedience to the truth. By the way, this is how Jesus loved us. That he He didn't love us just when we were good, just when we were living life for him. Quite the contrary, actually. He loved us while we were sinners, while we were enemies of God. He demonstrated his love for us. Did you always feel like it? You know, I don't know. You had the conversation where, Jesus, hey, is there another way that I could demonstrate my love? But no matter what, I'm going to be obedient to what you've called me to do. All right? So, uh, then Peter describes the quality of this love. And he says there's a sincerity to it. There's a brotherly like sincerity to this. That word sincerity is literally without hypocrisy. There's no, there's no fakeness to it. There's not just this plastered on smile that I had when I was uh, in Sierra Leone. No, no, there's a genuineness to it. It's not an act. It's real, it's authentic. You can, you can just sense it that, wow, there's, these people, they just love and it's a real, authentic, Caring type of way, and it's beautiful. And then Peter takes it a step fur- further, and he's saying there's a fervency to it. There's a, there's an immediacy uh, to it. And that that word there is, it actually came from the world of athletics, where you're kind of like stretching. So, you know, today, Sunday foot, football is coming on just a little bit. You can imagine the athletes. Right now, just getting ready and they're stretching on the sidelines and you know, getting their legs ready, their arms ready, just stretching everything out. And just, okay, what's the capacity of my muscles here to stretch? It's the same idea with love. Like, how, how far can I extend this love? Like, what's the capacity of, uh, to love? Love like that. Love like that. It's, it's, it's incredible. Love to the point where you say, I don't, I don't think I have anything else to give. I don't think I have anything else to offer. I've extended myself in every way possible, to love. That's how you love the family of God. You purpose yourself to love others. Note, this type of love is not, um, it's not based on emotion, and it's not based on merit. It's simply based on the will. I'm choosing to be obedient to the truth, to a truth that never changes, even when my emotions and other actions do change. And so we have this incentive to love because we are part of a new family uh, that we've been adopted into. Not one of perishable seed, but of imperishable. It is a forever family. Uh, someone joked like, hey, you're going to be with this family forever. Might as well start loving them now. Right? Now, it's not as crude as that. That's not, that's not how Peter's really talking. He's saying, this is a beautiful family. It's a wonderful family. This is what, so let's, let's have family now, what it's going to look like there. Because it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be great. There's, there's such unity. And see, see what Peter's doing? He's focusing on the unity throughout Roman culture at that time. There's all these different that are, uh, factions that are developing and people are at odds and all this kind of divisiveness, focusing on differences and what he's doing to the church. No, Let's focus on, on our, the unity that we share in Christ. God is Father. What they're talking about out there, we're not talking about in here. Our focus is different right? We're kingdom people. Our focus is different. The underlying principle behind all of this is we love, not because of some external principle um, or external pressure, not because of external pressure, where God's saying, okay, you have to love. Love because you have to love. You have to love. You have to love. No, no, it's not that. It's internal principle where I know, okay, this is family. This is the family that I've been adopted into. I may not feel like it right now. They might not merit it right now, but I'm choosing to love. That's the kind of love he's talking about. We love others based on internal principle, not external pressure. And we do that because we're obedient to the truth. Peter ends this section and he quotes Isaiah 40. I mentioned it last week. He quotes Isaiah 40, and this wasn't coincidental, okay? I wasn't just like, well, this is my favorite verse. I just want to like leave this with you guys. No. Uh, but he says this, For all flesh is like grass, In all its glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Isaiah 40 was given to the Israelites during their time of exile. It was during their exile, when they were sojourners in a foreign land. It was a discouraging time, you know, to live as uh, strangers, exiles in a foreign land. And now he takes it. And he repurposes it to the church. And how are they living? As exiles in a foreign land. They're living under Roman occupation. And so he's just reapplying what the Israelites had gone through during the time of Isaiah to what the church is going through during Roman occupation. And the encouragement is, this is not going to last forever. What you're going through right now will not last forever. It might look like it right now. Like the Roman Empire looks big and strong and powerful. And you think, man, this, are we ever going to get out of this? Yeah, you will. It's not going to last forever. But you know what will last forever? The word of the Lord. God's word, his promises, his purposes, it stands forever. And so now it comes to us. And we read this, and and all Christians at all times live in some way as exiles in this foreign land. And one day we will be the elect living in God's perfect kingdom. We already are, but, uh, but living in God's perfect kingdom. And so this reminds us that God hasn't overlooked our suffering either. He didn't overlook the suffering of the Israelites when they were in exile in Babylon. He didn't overlook the suffering of the, of the first church when they were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And he doesn't look, overlook your suffering today either. He knows what you're going through, and the encouragement is the same. Hey, this doesn't last, but his word, his kingdom will last forever. So let's go ahead and be obedient to kingdom values now. He's Lord now. And one day there's going to be this great celebration for how you were obedient to his truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, it's good to be able to call you Father, to be able to acknowledge that you are holy, that you are righteous, uh, and that you look at us, your church, as your children who were adopted into your family because of faith and hope in Jesus Christ. So God, the the reality of that, may that affect how we live each and every moment of our lives uh, to your glory and your honor alone. We need help to do that, so we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.